this morning we are kicking off a new series through the book of Hebrews. The series is entitled, So Great a Salvation. Now, we don't know a lot about the author of Hebrews. In fact, we don't even know his name. Some people think it was the Apostle Paul. Some people guess it was Barnabas or Apollos. We don't even know a lot about who he was writing to. Think about the title, the letter to the Hebrews. That's a pretty big, ambiguous group. And it was a title that was actually added later. What we do know is that some 2,000 years ago, and 6,000 miles away, a Jewish Christian pastor sent a message to his small, struggling church. They were struggling because they were experiencing unbelievable persecution. They were being oppressed by their culture, and their church was dwindling. People started out of fear, they started to leave the church. And not only were they leaving the church, they were leaving the Christian faith altogether. And so the Christians who were left, they began to look at all of this that we're doing this morning. They began to look at what they do in gathering together as God's people and praying and reading the word of God together and sharing in the gospel of grace. They begin to wonder, is any of this worth it? And so the author of Hebrews sent them a message, and it's a message that you and I desperately need to hear this morning. So I invite you to stand for reading of God's word. We'll be looking at the first two verses of the book of Hebrews as well as chapter two, verse three. The author of Hebrews writes, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And now chapter two, verse three. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. If you would, please raise your hand for ZestQuest. We'll get those out to you. I'm a little rusty, I'm sorry. Children, raise your hand high so we can follow along the sermon that way. The British novelist and philosopher Aldous Huxley wrote that most human beings have an almost infinite capacity to take things for granted. Now, if you paid attention in English class, you know who that was. But you don't have to know who that was to recognize there's some truth to that. Most human beings have an infinite capacity to take things for granted. It's amazing, isn't it? All the blessings that God has given us in this life, how easy it is for us to take them for granted. This can be true of our health. It can be true of our finances. It can be true of our freedoms. And what I want us all to recognize this morning is that it can even be true of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And I should know, I grew up in Waco, Texas. Now before Chip Chip and Jojo made it famous, Waco is known as Jerusalem on the Brazos. It's called that because there's literally a church on every single street corner. And then I left the thriving metropolis of Waco and I went to college in College Station, Texas. 
I went to Texas A&M. It's basically a Christian school, if you think about it, where college students go to church on Sunday mornings after they hit the bars the night before, where every single week thousands of college students fill up a basketball arena to go to a Bible study. And then I left College Station and I moved to Dallas, the buckle of the Bible Belt. And now I'm a pastor here with all of you. As we came to church this morning, none of us came out of fear. We weren't afraid that we would be arrested when we got here. We weren't wondering if somebody had shut the church down. Though yes, at times we feel this kind of pressure from society, the other days of the week, we don't feel it on Sundays. No, it's still culturally acceptable to go to church on a Sunday morning in Dallas. And if you look around, I mean, God has blessed us immensely. This wonderful church filled with wonderful people, beautiful music, a great staff, capable lay leadership, an expansion to increase our capacity for ministry, and most importantly, we're part of a church that holds high the name of Jesus Christ, that believes his word is true. And so here's the author of Hebrews, and he says, do not neglect so great a salvation. And we wonder, what does that have to do with us? Why would we neglect all of this? Because I think Aldous Huxley is right. We have an infinite capacity to take things for granted. And it's possible to come to a church just like this, to sing all the songs, to say all the right Christian words, to do all of the right Christian things, and yet live a life that takes for granted the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so as we dive into the letter to the Hebrews this fall together, the author is going to warn us of the real danger of neglecting so great a salvation. And this morning, it is my prayer that he will awaken us to the greatness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So real quickly, the first way that I want us to see his greatness this morning I want us to see the greatness of his truth. The author of Hebrews writes in verse 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, the prophets. And what you need to know at this point as we dive in, that in the original language, in the Greek, this is some of the most complicated and beautiful Greek construction in the entire New Testament. Beautiful, not just in the way it was written, but beautiful in the way it would have been heard as if it were spoken. This is not just an ordinary letter. The book of Hebrews is a sermon, a sermon recorded and written down and sent to a congregation. What that means for us today, this morning, is that Hebrews is not just something we should read. The book of Hebrews is something we should hear. 
And so the author says, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by the Son. He's trying to orient us as the people of God, trying to remind us of our place in God's story. Why? Because we're prone to forget. We're prone to forget that we are loved faithfully. And so he's saying, hey, look, God has always spoken to us. He has never abandoned us. He has always spoken long ago. He spoke to us through the prophets. But now, in these last days, he's spoken to us by the Son. You can translate these last days as the final age. It's where we find ourselves just like the New Testament church, just like these original hearers of the book of Hebrews. We join with them. We look back on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that has already been poured out for us, but we look forward to the day when Christ will return. It has not yet happened. And yes, while it is good for us to place our hope in a future return, The writer of Hebrews is trying to remind us that you can already, right here, right now, experience the promise of salvation. And so he says, in these last days, right here, right now, God has spoken to you by his son. Apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians He said, all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. All of the promises, all of the prophets have culminated in Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of God's great promise of salvation. Do you know what that means? It means you can trust him because his promises are true. God has spoken through his son. Now we live in an age where promises are broken every single day. We break promises every single day. And so it shouldn't surprise us that truth is often met with skepticism. And this is nothing new. On the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested, he stood trial before Pontius Pilate, a Roman governor. Pilate asked him, so you're a king. This was Jesus' response. He said, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And then Pilate asked him, what is truth? What is truth? Ever since the Enlightenment, Truth has been defined by what you can see, what you can prove empirically. But today we are witnessing a shift on how people interact and understand truth. No longer is truth what you can prove empirically. Truth is what you feel experientially. And so the truth that I have and I've experienced might be different than the truth that you have and you're experiencing But who am I to question your experience? Who are you to question mine? 
And so it's not that nothing is true unless you can prove it empirically by what you can see. Now everything is true. Everything is true if you can experience it. The problem, of course, with this is that when those truths are in conflict and they contradict, not everything can be true. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He did not say, I am the way and a truth. He said, I am the truth. He is the ultimate truth. And every single day, we place our hopes in these false truths, hoping that they can deliver something on their empty promises. And what you need to know this morning, friends, Jesus Christ is the truth, and his truth has been fulfilled. The promise of salvation is true. Jesus died, and he rose again, so that all who believe in him would have life. But you see, the other thing you have to know about Jesus being the truth, it means you cannot reduce him to just a set of Bible facts. You cannot reduce the truth of Jesus to a bunch of propositional statements to memorize and repeat. David Ninehouse, New Testament professor at Seattle Pacific University, says that modern evangelical Christianity has produced a generation of Bible quoters, not Bible readers. I want you to listen to what he said. He said, they approached the Bible as sort of a reference book, a collection of useful God quotes that can be looked up as one would locate words in a dictionary or an entry in an encyclopedia. That is not what is meant by Jesus being the truth. You cannot reduce him to something to just give intellectual assent to or say, yeah, I agree with that. For Jesus to be the truth means that truth became incarnate. It was embodied. This is what the writer of Hebrews is telling us. God has spoken to us through his son. And so faith in the truth of God is not just reciting a bunch of Bible facts. It's not just believing that there is a God faith in the truth of the gospel is believing him for what he says. It's trusting in his promise. When God came to Abraham and made him a covenant promise that he would be our God and we would be his people, Genesis tells us that Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. It doesn't say that he believed in the Lord. Even the demons believe and shudder. No, it says he believed the Lord. In other words, he trusted him at his word. He trusted his promise. And so let me ask you this morning, have you trusted in God's promise of salvation? Have you taken him at his word, capital W, Jesus Christ? Not just believe that yes, there is some God out there, yes, Jesus was a man who walked, but have you trusted in the promise that God has spoken to us through his son? 
real quickly, the second thing I want us to see this morning. I want us to see the greatness not only of his truth, but also of his authority. The preacher continues. He says, in these last days, God has spoken through his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things. Now, the word heir is a legal term. You can think of it almost like a royal title. It means possessor. This is Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. And what that means is that every ounce of authority that belongs to the kingship of God himself belongs to Jesus. He is the heir. And so the kingdom of God belongs to Jesus Christ. He is the heir of all things. Notice what the writer says. So who is King Jesus authoritative over? Where does his authority reach? Everything. He is not the heir of some things. He's not the heir of only sacred things. He's not the heir of only Sunday morning things. No, he is authoritative over all things, however big they might seem to you and however small. You see, there's two types of people, I think, when we think about the authority of God. Those that struggle to believe that he is authoritative over the big things we cannot control and those who think that he can't possibly care about the little things that we try to desperately control every single day. And though he is authoritative over all things, the truth is you and I have a problem with his authority, do we not? And this is true whether you are a Christian this morning or not. Most doubt, most disbelief is not about an intellectual problem. It's about our authority problem. It's that deep down we think we could do it better. We want to be in charge. We want to have the authority. But here, the author of Hebrews is reminding us what I believe is very good news. That Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. That means he possesses all things. Not just stuff out there, but that means he possesses our hearts as well. And so ironically... In rebelling against the authority of God, we think freedom is found in the things of this world. So we chase down success and fortune and comfort, thinking that these things are where true freedom is found. And the irony is, is that these things actually hold more authority over us than we realize. That's why Jesus said that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. That means that the sins that we commit every day, we're not just doing freely. We're actually doing them because we're enslaved to them. We're in bondage to them. And so for Jesus Christ to be our authority is good news because what we are saying is that his authority is greater than any authority of any sin that has you captive this morning. He is the king of kings and lord of lords, and he has waged war against the principalities and powers of darkness, and he has already won. And so the fact that he has authority over all things this morning is good news because that means that you have been set free. Sin holds no sway over you any longer. 
because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So the final thing I want us to see this morning about how great our Savior truly is, is this. I want us to see the greatness of his power. Mark tells a story in his gospel about Jesus and his disciples out on a boat. It's where much of Jesus' ministry was done. And as they're on this boat, Jesus decides to take a nap. And he goes to sleep. Now, ordinarily, this wouldn't be a big deal because all of his disciples were uh, capable boatsmen. They were fishermen. They understood what to do on the water, except on this one occasion, a great storm came, a storm unlike any storm that they had ever seen. And they knew just enough as boatsmen to know that this is bad, and it's going from bad to worse. And yet here is Jesus still asleep. And so just like you and I, when we look at the circumstances of life, knowing just enough to think that we are in control, they start freaking out. And they start wondering, what on earth are we going to do? They are filled with fear, and they wake up Jesus, and he says, why are you afraid? And he stands up on the boat, and he says, peace, be still. And the winds stop, and the waves calm down. And then I want you to listen to the question that his disciples ask. They say, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? There is not a greater question for our day. Who is this Jesus Christ? Who is he? Every one of us in this sanctuary this morning must give an answer to that question. Who is Jesus Christ? Was he just a man? Was he just a moral example? Was he a wise philosopher? Is he just our cultural icon? The author of Hebrews concludes his opening sentence of his sermon in this way. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. What is he saying? He's saying Jesus Christ was there at creation. He was not created. He is not just a man like you and I. No, he is creator. And he was there when the universe was spoken into existence. The apostle Paul put it this way, Colossians 1, he said, for by him all things were created, and on heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. When we think of the creation story, we think of Genesis, we typically think of God the Father creating the universe. But the writer of Hebrews has given us a clue. God has spoken to us through the Son. So where was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, at creation? I want you to listen this morning to Genesis chapter 1. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Did you hear it? God the Father created the heavens and the earth. God the Spirit hovered over the face of the deep. And God the Son, God said, let there be light. John says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and in him was life, and life was the light of men. In these last days, the author of Hebrews tells us, God has spoken through his Son. In the same way that he spoke through his Son to put the universe into existence, He has spoken through his son to give us salvation through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Why does that matter for us this morning? Why does it matter that we see him as creator? Because the same power that was at work in creation is now at work in you and me in making us into a new creation. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. I wonder, for those of you this morning who call yourself Christians, who have professed faith in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection for your salvation, do you feel new this morning? Do you feel like a new creation? Is that how you would describe your Christian walk? Hey, how are you doing? Well, brother, I'm just, I'm new. I'm new today. The truth is, so often we wake up on a morning like this and we feel old. Not old age-wise. We feel weary. We feel tired. We feel that we've aged more in a lifetime than several lifetimes. And we feel like, is any of this worth it? Is any of it working? Yes, we know that Jesus Christ will return one day, and then we'll be new. But notice what Paul says. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It matters that we see Jesus Christ as being an agent of creation, the one through whom God created the entire universe, because the same power that spoke the universe into existence, took on flesh, lived a life like you and I, and yet did not sin, tempted in every single way that you and I are. That same power was then arrested and beaten and nailed to a cross. And that same power that said, let there be light, hung on the cross and said, it is finished. And then on the third day, that same power rose again so that you and I right here and right now might experience the power of our great salvation. So I ask you this morning, 
Do you see the greatness of the salvation we have been given in Christ Jesus? Or like me, with all of this blessing and abundance, are you prone to neglect it? Do you see the greatness of our Savior, the greatness of his truth, the greatness of his authority, and the greatness of his power? And will you join me this morning in going back to him and saying, Holy Spirit, would you show me again just how great our Savior Jesus Christ truly is. Who is this man, Jesus? He is the Son of God, and he is our great Savior. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we pray this morning, tomorrow, the next day, and the day after that, that you would give us eyes to see the greatness of our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would forgive us in the ways that we take this wonderful salvation for granted. And may you teach us this fall, as we go through the book of Hebrews together, what it means to cherish the salvation we've been given in Jesus Christ. May we respond by worshiping you now, by declaring to one another and to you the greatness of your son Jesus and may we respond as we leave this sanctuary this week, reminding one another and telling those who don't know just how great our Savior truly is. It's in his strong name that we pray, amen.